Amanda Fielding is the director of the Beckley Foundation, which is a charitable organization set up by her in 1998 to initiate and carry out pioneering research into the underlying mechanisms and the therapeutic potential of psychedelics and to create a scientific basis for global drug policy reform. Amanda is perhaps the original disruptor, reopening the whole field of research into psychedelics from psilocybin to LSD, MDMA to DMT. Now, two decades later, let's catch up on what's happening in this exciting new frontier of psychedelics for mental health, happiness and connection. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Hello. What was it that got you first started in this research into psychedelics? Um, I suppose, in a way, it was my destiny, one could say, because uh, I, I, I was born and grew up in this house, which is very isolated. It's surrounded by three moats, and it's on the edge of a fen, and it feels as though you're right in the middle of nowhere. And so my whole childhood was as if we were in the middle of nowhere. And so it was very um, isolated, and I had charming, intelligent parents, but um, my father um, never really made any money. He potted at farming, and he was really a painter. And so it was a very, uh, it was a kind of mixture of peasant and, um, and a, a quite high intellectual background in in the case of my father's. Um, so it, it, it was a funny, outside-the-norm um, background, and a very strong influence on me was my father's best friend, who he picked up when he was at Oxford. He was very lazy, and he picked up this rather genius figure to do his essays and do his work for him, who then came and lived here at Beckley. And... Um, he was called Bertie Moore, and uh, he became a rather um, a famous, in a way, Buddhist monk, because he was the first person to translate into English. Um, uh, it's called the Path to Purification, which is the kind of core Buddhist thinking. And, um, and he was my godfather. So, although I never met him, he was a very strong influence. So, from a very early age, I um, was fascinated in the mystical experience. As a child, I had mystical experiences, as I think most children do. And I um, dreamt magic adventures with mystical experiences in them. And this is a very kind of mystical, fantasyful place to wander alone, alone as a child kind of thing. And so it was very kind of deep in my psyche. Also, my mother was a Catholic, so I got Catholicism from her. My father was an atheist and Bertie was a Buddhist. So I had a little bit of all of that in my um, upbringing. And I... Um, yeah, and so I was studying mysticism when I was kind of 10. And um, then when I was 16, I won the school science prize and wanted books on Buddhism, and the nuns wouldn't give them to me. So I decided to say, 
thanks a bunch, I'm off, which I did. And I went and travelled with £25. I left England at the age of 16 and was going to go and see Bertie, um, the Buddhist monk, where he lived on an island in Ceylon, near Candy. And of course I never got there, £25. But I had all sorts of adventures living with the Bedou in, in the desert and travelling around uh, the Middle East. And, uh, and then I ended up in Egypt and all sorts of adventures. And so, and then I started, as I'd left school at 16, I, I had to educate myself. And in some strange way, I got the... Uh, the head professor actually in the world at that point called Professor Zainer, who was at All Souls in Oxford. And he became my professor of comparative religions and mysticism. So I, um, I studied under him and another professor called Albert Harani, um, who taught me classical Arabic because they were trying to rather divert me off becoming Buddhist. And And so I got very um, fascinated with that. And at about that time, when I was about 16, I uh, was introduced to cannabis, which I thought was extraordinary, um, wonderful, how it increased one's um, awareness. And then later, I was introduced, I think I was 22, to LSD in London, and I was amazed at his capacity to kind of inspire the mystical experience. But at the same time, I felt, gosh, it's not something one can really live on. It's a trip to the funfair more than a way of life. Yes, the great psychiatrist Stanislav Grof said psychedelics used responsibly and with proper caution would be for psychiatry what the microscope is for biology and, um, uh, and medicine, or the telescope, is for astronomy. So what was he getting at? What can psychedelics tell us about the human experience? Uh, yes, well, I totally agree with that description, in as much as they both magnify the detail of what you can observe in either um, the, the minute or the magnificent. And... Psychedelics do the same thing. They, they change the functioning of the brain in such a way that you can compare it to normal consciousness. And from that you can learn so much about consciousness because you can see the whole or more of the spectrum of the conscious states, which is, I mean, I suppose the first philosopher to kind of really examine that is William James. And... He described it, the levels of consciousness, like being separated by veils. And I remember that very clearly when I first took um, LSD in 1966, 65 was when I first took it. Um, it, it one realises how very close it is to insanity, but also to ecstasy. So one was kind of balanced between those two different states which are normally beyond the veil where one reaches. But now, what I find really interesting, and I wrote about it in my book, um, uh, Natural Highs, originally, was 
it seems that almost every major culture, uh, every sort of major awakening that's resulted in a new culture has, has coincided uh, or has used a hallucinogen yes. in some kind of awakening, not necessarily for everyone, but the high priests or the shamans. And uh, yeah. yesterday I was at the uh, British Museum, uh, mm. a very good show on Peru, mm. and I learned that uh, the Chavin culture, which predates the Incas, were uh, using ayahuasca, which mm. is a source of DMT we may talk about at least a thousand years ago, but probably a lot more predating the Incas. Um, while the mescaline uh, cactus, which again we'll have a chat about, goes back at least 4,000 years ago. The yeah. Greeks, which is kind of the origin of our Western culture, they had this drink, Kikion, uh, which they yeah. think uh, from the ergot fungus you know, mm. contains something similar to LSD. The Egyptians had blue lily or blue lotus. Uh, and, and then suddenly, you know, we find there's a complete shutdown Mm-hmm. Uh, in any talking about uh, or research on psychedelics. When did that shutdown happen and why? Yes, it's amazing. I think it's rather like looking, if you cut a tree, you can see which years there was plenty of water. And it's the same looking back at culture. You could see certain cultures had a great flowering of artistic brilliance and um, intellectual explosion. And they were usually the cultures which used... Um, altered states of consciousness at their core. It it made a richer society. And, I mean, for instance, our own culture, the classical world, it was completely hidden that that culture was based on a mystical experience at the centre of it, that every um, Greek or Roman who was anyone um, went to Eleusis and experienced uh, life, uh, death, the experience of death and rebirth, and their whole culture was based on that secret knowledge. And that was completely, even until um, a few years ago, prohibited. I know someone who tried to do a PhD on it at, at, at Harvard about 10, 15 years ago, and he was told if he did that subject he wouldn't get his PhD. And so... Um, and when you look at cultures, the wonderful cultures, the most wonderful ones, had a relationship with altered states. Mm-hmm. And the first kind of burst of culture, as far as I know, is the caves that Chauvet, the French caves, which mm-hmm. were, oh, whatever, 35,000 years ago, when suddenly, from having made hundreds of thousands of years of spearheads, more or less the same, they burst into that art, which no one's ever surpassed, in my opinion. And you can tell that the artists who did this at the pitch dark inside of the world, earth, with flames, did it in an enhanced state of consciousness, because the the brush strokes are so um, orgastic. I, I, as a painter, know that you only do that sort of art when you're on a high level. And so it's rather wonderful to think right at that beginning of human culture, our ancestors were experiencing these altered states. I'm absolutely sure of it. Well, yeah, I mean, that very idea that, uh, uh, that some of these ancient rock arts uh, may have been influenced through the use of psychedelics was heretical. And uh, one of my um, dear friends, uh, David Coulson, who's 
perhaps one of the world's experts in rock art, uh, eventually got to the point where he concluded, yes, that is the case. And uh, by the way, one of the uh, one of the sort of reasons why that occurs is that there are certain um, hallucinations, certain patterns, certain waves, certain kind of explosions yeah. of of uh, of what we see yes. um, that occur on psychedelics and are are in these ancient. You can recognise them. Yeah, yes. So that's it. But yes. then, when did it all get shut down? When did uh, and why? Um, I think it, I mean, like um, in in Greece, Eleusis was a, a secret thing on 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 threat of um, death. You didn't talk about it, and that's maybe why Socrates had to kill himself because he shared the psychedelic at the dinner party with the charming young, whatever his name was, uh, philosopher. And um, so I think it was very often an uh, esoteric thing, the change of the, uh, you know, the altered states of consciousness. It was at the centre of the culture, but maybe there were the priest caste or the kings or the kind of special people, not always, but I think quite often it was that. And so they like to keep it for themselves and keep the rest of the people slaving away, building the pyramids or whatever they were doing. <laughs> but maybe if they took too many psychedelics, they might um, revolt against being the builders. <laughs> and so to a certain degree, maybe it was always kept to a certain degree secret. But I think Christianity was a very bad move for altered states of consciousness, although I'm sure it started with that. I'm sure that Jesus was part of a sect which went to the desert and experienced altered states. And I think there was a whole world of mystical people, mystics. Um, obviously there was, and in um, um, early uh, 500 BC it was a great spark of uh, rich um, intellectual explosions and I think certain periods there was more of the mm. altered state which made these explosions of new ideas and all I, 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 I think definitely uh, Christianity and kind of known religions weren't um, you know they liked the priest caste to, to be the top dogs and then they slowly forgot the experience and kept the words. Mm -hmm. And so the word replaced the experience to the, um, to the cost of civilization, in a sense. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I think... And then we have the Inquisition and all of those things. And, and then, then there's the sort of shutdown in, what is it, the 1960s or something? You know, the LSD is discovered, yes. it starts to, you know, uh, what was it? Explode, and, yeah. and maybe people think it's more fun making love in the park than going and getting killed in Vietnam. Yeah. And, so, and then Nixon shut the whole thing down yeah. big time. Yeah, and it, because actually it was completely expedient for a dominating culture um, uh, people don't like um, anarchists or people who think for themselves. It's not good for the controllers. No, no government likes kind of um, talk of revolt. 
yeah. or independence. So it's always probably been slightly uncomfortable for rulers. Yes. Too, too much. A bit too space. subversive. Yeah. And then, in a sense, you start getting involved in research, uh, uh, you know, leading to the Beckley Foundation. When was that? When was your first trial? Well, I suppose that started in 1966 when at this party I went to in London where Ravi Shankar was playing, I met a Dutch scientist called Bart Hugis. And he had, uh, he was a doctor and scientist, and he had um, two new hypotheses about, one about how um, underlying the altered states of consciousness, which you get through many different ways, like uh, fasting, meditation, exercise, but also through the use of a psychedelic, such as the LSD. Um, there's a change in consciousness, and as a scientific stroke doctor, his interest was, what is the physiological basis of that change? And anyway, the result was the the um, hypothesis that there's an increase of blood in the brain capillaries, so that the overall volume of blood in the brain capillaries is increased due to the constriction of the veins, and so suddenly billions more brain cells are provided with um, energy, glucose and oxygen, and so there's more simultaneous functioning. And that brings about a changed form of consciousness where um, the ego mechanism, which was a mechanism, this is trying to condense it all, a mechanism that the upright talking ape developed because of the loss of blood from its brain, so it was short of blood. So it had to develop an internal mechanism which directed the lower level of blood to the most essential centres for survival. And that was this mechanism, which, say, Freud called the ego, which um, Barth described as a conditioned reflex mechanism which constricts the veins and directs the blood to where it's most needed. And that is a funny, very fascinating new way of understanding oneself and humanity. And so I really became quite um, just fascinated and devoted to the idea of how I can understand better um, the mechanisms underlying these different states of consciousness and how one can learn to live on them and work on them. By work, I mean intellectually function. And um, I, I was amazed at the potential to expand one's field of cognition and awareness and the depth and the possibility to change. Like in 1966, at that age, as a child, I was very tall. So I, I had, at 13, taken up the habit of smoking nicotine because I was told it would stop me growing. So by 23, 
I was quite a, a nicotine addict, and Bart said, what a disgusting habit. So I decided I'll use LSD and tell myself, this is a disgusting habit, I'll give it up. And I did that, and I gave it up, and never smoked again. And actually, that was the basis of why, whatever it was, 40 years later, I suggested when um, Roland Griffiths from John Hopkins said, what sort of study would I like to do? I said, well, what about giving up nicotine? I did it when, all those years ago, and it worked. So that was the basis of the nicotine study at John Hopkins, which get, got, um, I think, at the beginning it was 80% success rate. So it got an amazingly high success rate. So basically what I learned back then in the 60s was the capacity of LSD. I used LSD on myself as I was my first, um, whatever, patient, subject. And because I found you could do a lot of more research on yourself than on other people. And in those days there was no brain imaging, so it wasn't possible to kind of test it in the way the brain imaging permitted. And But what I discovered is it in, I could increase my cognitive functioning. In those days, for relaxation, we were passionate about the Chinese game Go, which is total... Um, no, no chance. It's you're fighting over space, and the better player wins. And I found that if I was on LSD and my opponent wasn't, I won more games. And for me, that improved. Well, it improves my cognitive functioning, which is what I would say it does do. I, I would say that if you keep in control of the increased cognition, and by keeping in control, that's what I learned from my diabetic father, if he let his sugar level drop too far, um, he couldn't cognitively concentrate. Whereas you eat some glucose and your sharpness of concentration returns. And so I found that amazing, that we as an animal could actually enhance our level of cognition by uh, taking one of these compounds. One could change the depth of one's feeling, increase the uh, experience of beauty or the listening to music or the actually cognitive sharpness. And I thought, well, this is amazing. I, I must... Um, this is... I'd always, as a child, wandering around alone at Beckley, kind of dreamt of whatever you do as a child, dream of uh, saving the world, in inverted commas. And I realised that the knowledge of how you increase cognition and your sen sense of self and your ability to dig into yourself and change yourself and uh, understand other people better and be more compassionate and love more and all the things it seemed to enhance I thought this, this is an amazing elixir if we as a society learn to intelligently use it as indeed societies had in the past um, it would be for our individual and the group benefit so that's when I decided well this, this is my this is my function, uh, to try to... I realised at that point 
um, as, uh, in the 60s, at the end of the 60s, the uh, criminalization of these compounds was getting installed to the horror. You know, obviously it was madness. It was the worst thing they could do was to throw these compounds underground so that the criminal cartels would take hold of them and use them to become one of the biggest industries in the world. Instead of the governments taking hold of making sure that um, they were regulated carefully, etc., etc. I think society made a terrible mistake at that point. And, and your, your sort of left field exploration started to become a little bit more uh, centre uh, stage and mainstream. I remember uh, Professor David Nutt. I think uh, you uh, you established a connection yeah, with him, and then and then we had the first sort of major trials. Was it on right. psilocybin? Well, that was later. That was. Yeah. After kind of 30 years of trying to, um, whatever, teach the world that these compounds are really incredibly valuable compounds mm. which society should study and learn about and learn to use cleverly. Mm -hmm. And having realised that I was um, beating my head against a stone wall, I decided as a single female without money or letters after my name, it's very difficult to change the world and indeed open up scientific research. So I decided, I was an artist, so I decided, well, I'll become a foundation and that will give me more standing. And actually you can just become a foundation, it's just a word, it costs you whatever, a few hundred pounds I think. And I, the clever trick I had was I got the top neuroscientist in England, a charming man called Colin Blakemore, um, came on my advisory board. I also asked Albert Hoffman, who I was a friend of by that point. And, and he that, was the discoverer. He was the discoverer of LSD, and yeah. a wonderful, wonderful man at that point, nearly a hundred and as sharp as a button and absolutely charming. And because um, of them, and then I got kind of, whatever, 15, 20 of the top scientists in the world to be on my advisory board. And then that gave me um, a certain status. So then I realised, well, we can't do research because one couldn't, as I said to Colin Blakemore, let's um, do research to show, compare the different compounds, the illegal compounds with the legal ones. So, um, cannabis, psychedelics with alcohol and um, whatever, heroin. And he said, well, there's no chance that one could do research which is beneficial on, on the psychedelics because if it was beneficial, they wouldn't get published. And in any case, there's been no research done on them. So you can't do that. So we did a scale of harm. Mm -hmm. which became very influential, actually. So, anyway, at that point, I got these people um, on my advisory board, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to influence from the top. And so I decided to give seminars on the science behind the knowledge. What do we know about how these compounds work? And my special focus was obviously cannabis and the psychedelics. And so 
I set up a series of very top-level um, seminars at the House of Lords, and I asked presidents and the Home Secretary and the head of NIDA and all of those sort of people who all, for some reason, loved to come. So we had, I would design the research and what we talked about, the talks, and so we, and um, Dave Nutt was one of the people I asked, so they were the head of um, um, Robbins from Cambridge, um, uh, Colin Blakemore from Oxford. We had the top people coming and talking, and they were very influential at um, opening up the fact that these compounds, like the head of NIDA said it was in... But NIDA is the National Institute of Drug Ad uh, drug abuse addiction, or addiction, think, yeah, addiction, yeah. Something which was spending yeah. X billion on suppressing drugs. Very charming man who was the head of it, just retired. He said that his experiences with LSD were among the most important of his life. Mm -hmm. To the amazement of the Americans at the thing. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so then um, I was... Actually, at that early point, I wanted to start a centre at Oxford with Colin but, uh, to study psychedelics. Mm. And we could have done it if one could, could have raised the money necessary, but I, I, I didn't, couldn't raise the money. So then later, I suggested to Dave Nutt that we work together, and um, he was a very open-minded and, um, I mean, he'd never taken a psychedelic, but he was very interested in the whole concept. And so we started a very productive relationship working together for about 20 years. First we started it at Bristol, where he was, and then when he moved to Imperial, we started the Beckley Imperial Psychedelic Research Programme and did... Um, early research, the first research using fMRI to study psilocybin, how it works, and we discovered that it, what, which is, I was wanting to do brain imaging to prove or disprove the hypothesis that I had lived on for the last 30 years about mm -hmm. changing and blood, blood brain flow so, and activity. Um, yes. Brain imaging was my great passion, and I couldn't do that without being. Um, in collaboration with someone who had access to that technology. So with Dave, we set up the program. Um, the first person we trained was someone called, a young boy, young student called Robin K. Hart Harris, who became our first um, investigator. And so there we did the first study to investigate the use of psilocybin in overcoming treatment-resistant depression. And psilocybin is magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms. You know, it's and a... we got very, very successful results, much more successful than any offered treatment. Mm -hmm. Because um, treatment-resistant means yeah. you've tried several treatments and none mm -hmm. of them have worked. Yeah. And we had a 67% success rate of overcoming depression, which was extremely high. And then... With John Hopkins, I did the one with um, psilocybin overcoming nicotine addiction, mm -hmm. and that had 80% success. So those two studies made global ripples. People mm -hmm. suddenly had to think, gosh, this is quite something. 
And so I'd always realised that the only way to break the taboo on these compounds, which had come so strong because the whole of the governments were putting their forces into and the whole of the media world, saying how evil they were, was with the very best science, by demonstrating the possible benefits. Um, yes, and then one of the radical trials uh, was with Professor David Nutt, was um, MDMA, so ecstasy, on trial, live, on Channel 4, during neural imaging. Uh, and that was amazing to actually see this being openly explored with a group of people um, having uh, MDMA and seeing what yeah. happens in their brain. And yes. what did that teach us about what happens in the um, brain? Well, I don't think it was as... I mean, I think it was good in in the people kind of saw that serious people were working with it. And obviously it enhances um, empathy, which makes it very, very good for overcoming... Uh, trauma, mm-hmm. and so that that's what it really demonstrated that it can be a wonderful um, gain to being able to approach those horrifically painful memories which normally you can't get near, and so that's gave birth or strengthened the concept of using MDMA to overcome post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a very successful um, um, project which is now going on, led by um, MAPS in America for veterans. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think in a funny sort of way, to understand consciousness, we learned more from the classic psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And sadly, because LSD, which I think is the most interesting classic psychedelic, we couldn't use that because it was too taboo and we couldn't get permission to use LSD. But as no one knew what psilocybin was or how you spell it, it didn't really have any taboo to speak mm-hmm. of. So we concentrated on doing research on that. Mm-hmm. And with that, we discovered for the first time, um, I was looking for increases in capillary volume, which strangely I didn't find which was a surprise to me but at that point I think maybe the technology hadn't got to the point where we could see that so that's something now I'm doing whatever it is 30 years later Mm -hmm. I'm just starting a study at Yale which is very exciting with the latest brain imaging optical brain imaging where one can see the difference between arteries and veins and capillaries which is the key important part and so we did that, and we we saw that there was a decrease in blood supply to what used to be called the ego, but is now called the default mode network, which is the controlling, repressive, superimposed part of the brain, which enables us upright talking apes to keep control. Mm-hmm. And because it was already known that um, psychological disorders like depression and addiction there is excessive activity in the default mode network. We thought maybe with, with psychedelic, which decreases the blood flow to that part of the brain, we might be able to help heal it. Mm-hmm. And th- that is a very fascinating thing, what we've learned, is that 
um, re reducing the controlling repressive power of the default mode network, or the ego as it used to be called, um, allows the brain to be more interconnected. The whole brain starts to connect with other parts of the brain. So suddenly the whole brain is alive with connectivity. And that creates the kind of experience of mystical experience, the experience of unity, of awe, of wonder. And strangely, we discovered that it was people who underwent that experience who had the most success in overcoming their depression or addiction or whatever it was they were trying to overcome. So it's rather fascinating that at the, the centre of the new science is actually the spiritual experience, which mm -hmm. science had kind of killed off. Mm -hmm. So, um, and actually this is something I'm still very keen, and I'm in the middle of setting up a big study looking at the mystical experience from different brain imaging modalities to try to learn more about it. Yes, and there have been trials covering treatment-resistant depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and very interestingly, um, trials helping the terminally ill mm -hmm. uh, in tremendous states of anxiety and depression prepare yes. for death. Yes, that, that is a wonderful um, series of studies using full-dose um, psilocybin, or it could equally well be LSD, um, to with uh, sufficient preparation and then the experience and then the integration. And what is found is that people who've got terminal illness and are naturally suffering dreadfully, not only from the illness, but the kind of fear and, um, and unfairness of the whole thing, in this state, with the right therapeutic setting, can suddenly change their position. Suddenly they get to accept it. And um, there are wonderful stories of like a woman who, who was suffering terribly and she was an atheist. And she described the experience as being like being hugged by God. And people come out of this experience just so much happier and um, accepting the fate. And so it's much easier for the family and the people looking after them. And it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful treatment. And I'm at the moment doing some very exciting preparatory research on using microdoses of psychedelics for palliative care. Mm. Because we've done research showing that LSD can improve mood i.e. antidepressive, um, improve cognition and improve pain management, which are three amazing characteristics for old age. And I'm at the moment in the process of setting up several studies in different parts of the world to investigate the potential benefits of these. A microdose means a dose which is hardly perceptible, very low dose but which still has effect. And I, I think it could open up a whole um, new door of 
um, happier dying, which we, I think, in the West particularly, suffer so dreadfully from. And just before talking about microdosing, so in most of the studies, just talk us through a typical study, um, is the person given uh, the psychedelic once, uh, you know, at a higher dose? Is there a counsellor? What's the, yes. you know, what's the, what's the process for these people involved in the study? Yes. Well, the early studies we did, uh, the early high-dose study, uh, well, first I did one actually with PET scan in Switzerland um, to look at changes in cerebral circulation. But then uh, the next one was um, at um, Imperial, the part of the Beckley Imperial program, um, with psilocybin looking at whether it could help treat depression. And there, first, obviously, the, the participant, first one would have to test whether the participant, it was suitable for the participant to have a full dose. And then they would be prepared for it um, with kind of sessions with um, a guide who would um, know about the experience and, and, uh, and prepare them for it. So they, it wasn't a shock, it was prepared. And then um, it became quite habitual, but it, didn't, it doesn't have to be that way at all that the um, participant would be prepared and then when they took the dose they would lie, they would maybe have a eye mask on if they wanted and listen to music and then it would be a very internal journey but they'd have most usually two um, guides or sitters who would be there as quiet people to um, to make them feel secure and um, hold their hand if they want, you know, be there as guides and companions. And it was really the person exploring their inner world which helped them um, accept the sensations going on, basically, and the acceptance would somehow dissolve the force they had in the body. Mm. And um, it could have an amazing healing power, basically. And this is obviously what our traditional ancestors knew. They always had psychedelic experiences. That was part yes. of the group behaviour. Yes, no, I've travelled um, in South America and it, it yeah. is that way, that if, if, uh, if someone is maybe dealing with a... You know, serious illness or at a point in their life where they're, they don't know which way to go or they're depressed or whatever, they would approach the shaman. Yes, absolutely. And uh, there was preparation, but also in their culture, they uh, consider that the, um, you know, these plant medicines were yeah. healers, they were yeah. teachers. There was a whole yeah. kind of tradition yeah. around them as a, a kind of a sacrament, really. Yes. They were the food of the gods. Yeah, right food there. of the gods, and then yeah. uh, a ceremony would take place. Yeah. And again, it's an internal ceremony. So, yeah. in the case of um, ayahuasca, which is a, a tryptamine, LSD, mm -hmm. and psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca, these are all tryptamines. It would be done at night, mm -hmm. uh, so in the dark, an internal experience. However, 
the shaman was always there. Yeah. So if people were, uh, you know, hitting some dark stuff, and yes. crying or needed support yeah. in some way, the, yes. the healer, the shaman, the guide would help them to move through it. Yes, um, And yes, I witnessed people having phenomenal um, breakthroughs yes. that bring them into a whole yeah. much more positive state of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And so our ancestors have always had a close relationship with the spiritual and the healing and the amazing power of these plants. And the modern um, techniques are basically very much based on the traditional um, approach of of indigenous people because they knew how to do it they'd kept they'd kept the knowledge going alive all these thousands of years which is rather fascinating and that is what's kind of spreading out now through being absorbed by science and and just communities mm-hmm. and it's wonderful how i mean ayahuasca and has kind of it, it spreads like the mycelium Mm-hmm. You know, in capital cities, they had groups of people um, and wonderful tales of transformation. And mm. um, and as a, as a biochemist, for those listening, um, our brain produces a substance called dimethyltryptamine, tryptamine. And um, LSD has a tryptamine effect, psilocybin, the magic mushrooms, has a tryptamine effect. DMT is actually being studied you know, as a compound, ayahuasca is a combination of plants that uh, produce a prolonged DMT effect. And then there's another group of compounds um, uh, which contain mescaline, and it's fascinating because they occur in effectively two cacti, one more in North America, the peyote, and one more in the south called San Pedro, or traditionally called Huachuma, and that's what's called a phenethylamine, um, and MDMA is a bit more on that side of things. Uh, and, you know, suddenly, uh, after all these years of complete shutdown, I mean, just to sort of give a scale of it, I mean, how many trials have been published? How many are underway? Are we talking about 10, 20, 30? What's, what's happening uh, out there? More than that now. Yeah. I mean, um, when I started doing my first research, which is in... When I first set, I set up the Beckley Foundation in order to be able to do brain imaging research because, as an artist, which is what I had been, I realized the immense power of seeing the changes. And indeed, our brain imaging of the change on psychedelics actually have been very iconic to just show mm-hmm. how the whole brain is suddenly lit up and that's mm-hmm. what it feels like, the brain being lit up. And that is what it is, is light, more light in the brain. And in that it makes um, the brain more neuroplastic, more capable of change. And that's a very key um, happening, that suddenly with these compounds which um, carry out their effect through the serotonin 2A receptor, which brings about a cascade of changes, which in our hypothesis increases the capillary volume in the blood, so you suddenly have 
90% of the brain working as opposed to 10 or whatever we like to say, you suddenly have much more of the brain working. And so you're much more neuroplastic, it's much looser, it's like molten metal which can be formed. And then uh, out of it, the person can come out transformed, rather like a phoenix. It's like um, growing out of the fire a new, hopefully better, um, adaptation to reality. So the person comes out stronger and healthier. And so, as opposed to modern medicines, which are produced by the, um, the pharmacological world, which is basically, in the last 30 years, SSRIs, which are basically slightly depressants, they, they keep the pain down more than open it up so it can be um, fully experienced and hopefully set flight away. So, so one helps you avoid the pain and the yes. other one helps you really look at the source of your pain, discomfort, and despair and everything yes. else. And hopefully kind of fly out above it. Um, now in terms of dose, I mean I, I know LSD trips you know, back in the 60s were sometimes 100, sometimes 200 micrograms. Yes, That's 250 sort of, micrograms yeah. was normal in the yeah. 60s. And that was too big, really. And in the in the sort of psilocybin studies, you know, the high dose studies, what's the sort of equivalent dose? Is it in that zone? It you no, know, it it's it can be. Mm. I mean, depending on what, if you're trying to treat alcohol addiction, mm. say, it needs quite a high dose mm -hmm. to. Um, so different doses are used for different situations. But if you're trying to get the peak experience, which is when the brain is most neuroplastic, meaning mm. it's most able to change, then usually that's a dose in, in LSD terms of above uh, 100 micrograms. Mm. But a microgram is so tiny, it's, it's unbelievable how low the dose is in... It a compound yes. like so when you and when you talk about um, these new microdosing studies, yeah. what sort of dose that is, is that? then, um, uh, let's say one tenth of a small modern dose. I mean, in the old like, days, the dose like, was two hundred and fifty. So yeah. nowadays, say an LSD dose is a hundred micrograms, or maybe a normal dose, and a microdose is say ten microdoses. So mm. you have ten microdoses in one small full dose. So it's very, very low dose. And, um, well, I've done quite a few studies investigating microdosing because I think it's an amazing way of getting advantage of the changes which these category of compounds can make in the human brain, but at a very um, manageable level. Mm -hmm. And so, um, um, and so, I'm doing quite a few studies investigating uh, the microdose, mm -hmm. both with psilocybin and with LSD. Mm -hmm. So, we've done um, efficacy and safety 
and um, always comparing it with the placebo. And what what we saw was that at 20 micrograms, which is still a, a microdose, um, it increases um, mood, improves mood, increases cognition, and it increases pain management. Mm. So there's three amazing facilities because Certainly. what they do, we've, I also work with um, what's called translational research, which is where you work with mini brains, which are artificial brains, so you can see how it works on brain matter. And um, say LSD will is um, it's um, neuro creates neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, meaning making new neurons, and anti-inflammatory, which are three kind of amazing attributes. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I mean it's amazing you've managed to get all this research done because you know in the West psychedelics are classified as class A yeah. which basically means harmful and addictive yeah. and uh, one you know the idea out there is they harm the brain yeah. so is this true are they harmful are they addictive do well, they harm the brain actually our research and other people's have shown the exact reverse mm -hmm. that um they're actually amazing medicines because um, they increase um, neuroplasticity, so you can learn more. They increase neurogenesis, so it makes the body healthier, and I think you'll find that they're absolutely amazing. I'm beginning to work on these compounds in the treatment of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in neurodegenerative illnesses. Mm -hmm. And already we've got some amazing um, data to see how they can have an effect, but I'm just beginning down this route and obviously it takes a long time and difficulty getting ethical approvals and getting well, the Well, that would be tremendously important because we see so many people yeah. uh, on the slippery road to dementia and what yes. you're seeing there is neurodegeneration. Yes. So anything yes. that we can learn that helps yes. to regenerate those yes. connections is Absolutely. tremendously important. And I think obviously, in actual fact, we'll discover that we should start using these compounds when uh, the deterioration begins in the 40s to try to prevent it happening. And then, um, anyway, we've got so much to learn about these compounds. It, it's actually a tragedy that the governments of our countries which should be like good nannies to their, civil, uh, their citizens, aren't investing more into um, exploring how these compounds work, how we can use them, opening up clinics and research centres. And, and actually, in the last week, I've been approached by um, someone in the Bahamas who wants to start a research centre and someone in a couple of days ago in Uganda, who wants to start? You know, I think around the world, the the message is getting out that this is the new paradigm shift in how maybe we can approach sickness and um, things we thought we couldn't. Cause we are in the middle of a mental health epidemic, 
I mean, the pandemic is bad enough with COVID, but the mental health pandemic is... Um, Much worse. It's very bad. Yeah. And of course, there have been cases, we know, of people who've taken very high dose of LSD, um, not prepared, not yeah. uh, in, in the right circumstances. Uh, there have been some cases of psychosis. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, yeah. cases of people you know, doing something stupid that harms them. So Absolutely. all of this is in a sort of therapeutic context with good support, with good preparation, with good understanding of, yeah. of, 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 of what and, it is. And knowledge. I mean, it's like yeah. mountaineering. You can't... It, it's a very dangerous sport because mm. it... There are associated dangers, mm -hmm. and therefore, um, one needs the knowledge, and and that's where the governments, ideally, will provide. Um, I I rather encourage countries, which I need to um, reschedule these compounds so that they aren't um, wrongly designated as criminal, dangerous compounds that belong to the devil. But actually, they're incredible new medicines that we should embrace and study and do vast amounts of research and then open clinics and retreat centers and places where people can take advantage of these altered states of consciousness. Well, I was going to end by asking you what your wish list, your vision for the future was, but I think you've, <laughs> you've really said it. So right. I just want to say what uh, an amazing journey in your life and uh, you know, massive congratulations for opening up this whole and incredible um, field of research and exploration. Somehow humanity has uh, lost its sort of core essence of what life is all about. And uh, it seems, and I share your belief in that, that psychedelics have a very interesting and important role to play in enriching our lives. Yes. And not just our lives, but also death, the one thing Absolutely. that we're all so terrified yeah. of, but, yeah. you know, it's going yeah. to happen. Yeah. And, but it's not an easy answer. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, exactly. But I think it's a useful path to explore. Thank you so much. <laughs>